This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everyone. Well, it sure has been hot the last couple of days. I hope you're all staying cool until this heat wave passes. I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be speaking with Tiffany Griday, a senior biologist with the Loon Preservation Committee. We'll be discussing the loon mystery on Squam Lake in New Hampshire, and we'll also be talking about how the health of the loons on Squam Lake may be an indicator of loon health throughout the entire state. Tiffany, I'd like to welcome you to Bird Hugger. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks you so much, Catherine, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It's great to be on with you. Oh, thank you. Can you tell us about the Loon Preservation Committee and how long it's been in operation? Yeah, so the Loon Preservation Committee was founded in 1975 when people were noticing that loons were really declining in the state of New Hampshire. And basically one man, Ross and Wood, founded the Loon Preservation Committee, and we work statewide and we collect data at this point on an average of 350 lakes throughout the state of New Hampshire. Not all of those lakes have loons, but all of them have the possibility of having loons. So as we have been working to grow the population over the last 45 plus years, we're really keeping our eye on where loons are coming back to and making sure that we're censusing the whole population essentially of the state of New Hampshire. And the work that we do basically falls into four categories. One of them was, of course, the monitoring, as I've been talking about. We give or take one or two nesting pairs that might escape us. We are keeping track of every nesting pair of loons in the state each year. We also do a lot of research into factors that are impacting New Hampshire's loon population and challenges that may be facing them. And trying to understand what we can do to address those challenges and help the loons. And on a very on-the-ground level, we do a lot of management as well, and our management is really geared to helping the loons reproduce successfully while they're here in New Hampshire for the summer. So we put out the artificial nesting platforms to help loons when they've had problems with habitat destruction and giving them alternative places to nest. We rope and sign many of the loon nesting areas. We work with dam operators to control water levels. We just do a lot of on-the-ground, or maybe I should say on-the-water management to help the loons. And finally, we do education and outreach activity, understand how to share the lakes with loons and what they can do to protect them and helping them learn about the loons. So those are the four areas that we really work, but As I say, we do work across the state, and it's just been very exciting to look back at LPC's history and see how we've been able to grow the loon population over the years, but also understanding that there's a lot of challenges. That is great. Now, can you tell our listeners about your role at the Loon Preservation Committee? What is your job? 
Yeah, so my job is I'm the Squam Lakes biologist, so I cover big squam and little squam. Squam is, well, depending on who you talk to, either the second or third largest lake in the state, depending on how you count them, Bagog, which of course is shared between New Hampshire and Maine. But if you exclude them, Bagog, we are the second largest lake that's entirely contained in the state of New Hampshire. And then Little Squam, which is connected to it as well. And basically I do all of the monitoring, management, outreach, and research that happens on Squam Lake. The Squam Lake loon population has had a lot of problems in recent years. And in fact, between 2004 and 2005, Squam Lake lost nearly 50% of its adult loon population. Basically, there were 16 pairs on the lake in 2004. When we came back in 2005, we're down to nine pairs. That's a 44% drop in the loon population. And this is actually the largest single decline of a loon population on one of the large lakes in New Hampshire that we have seen in our history. And this was followed by years of almost total reproductive failure. In fact, in 2007, we had only a single surviving chick on Squam Lake. And unfortunately, there's been a few other years since then where we've also had only a single chick surviving. And so a major part of my job is to conduct research into, you know, what happened to the Squam's loon population. And of course, we're working very hard to restore a healthy population of loons to Squam Lake. So that's basically how I'm spending my time. And it's a very tragic situation, but it's also, of course, you know, from a scientific perspective, a very interesting situation to try to understand what happened here. But we're working very hard to hopefully see just a healthy population of loons on Squam Lake once again. And of course, the great thing is, is as we're doing this very in-depth focused research on Squam, what we've learned on Squam, we can apply to our efforts to restore loons throughout New Hampshire. In many ways, Squam holds a mirror up to New Hampshire's loon population because, of course, a lot of the things that are impacting Squam's loons are impacting loons throughout the state. So first, let's talk about the adult loons on Squam. What was it that was causing them to die? Yes, that's a great question. And we don't know for certain, but we certainly have our hypotheses. And the unfortunate thing is, we will never know for certain because those loons that disappeared and many of them were banded. So we have them marked with a unique color combination of bands so that we can identify these individuals. Basically what happened is they left Squam Lake in the fall, migrated to the ocean as they do, and they did not come back. These loons have not been recited on any surrounding lakes elsewhere. So we're presuming that they died. And because of the fact that these loons died over the winter, we did not recover any of the bodies of these loons. So, you know, normally a major part of the work that we do at Loon Preservation Committee, part of our research is to collect the bodies of loons that die, do a necropsy on them, which is basically a animal version of an autopsy to understand what caused them to die. But in the case of these squam loons, we don't have any of those carcasses. However, we do certainly have hypotheses as to what happened. And one of our major hypotheses is that these loons died of a combination of stressors and perhaps 
and I stress perhaps, but perhaps one of the key factors in that was chemical contamination. Because as we work to understand what happened to these loons, one of the things that we started doing was sending inviable eggs from failed loon nests in for contaminant testing. And this is also part of the regular work that we do at Loon Preservation Committee is we work under state and federal permits to collect failed eggs or abandoned eggs from nests that are not going to hatch for our research. And of course, we have a very strict protocol in place to make sure that those eggs are inviable or are abandoned before we collect them because we certainly do not want to collect an egg that has any chance of hatching. But once we follow that protocol and made that determination that those eggs are not going to hatch, we work under these permits to collect those eggs for our research. So what we did when we were faced with this situation on Squam is we sent some of these eggs in for contaminant testing, and we tested a variety of contaminants like PCBs, which, of course, have been banned for Decades, DDT, of course, infamous pesticide, also banned for decades, as well as newer contaminants like flame retardants, which are the BDEs, and I'll try not to throw too much alphabet soup at you here, but also PFAS, which has been in the news quite a bit lately, and that PFAS are used in, like, stain repellents, surfactants, you know, things like Teflon, Gore-Tex, things like that. And what we found was a higher level of chemical contamination in these loon eggs from Squam compared with eggs from other lakes that we tested. So a key part of our hypothesis as to what happened to those adult loons is that they were carrying this heavy burden of contaminants in their bodies that they had picked up on Squam because one of the things we know about contaminants in bird eggs is that these are usually put into the egg based on what the female bird has been eating in just the few weeks prior to when she lays the egg. And of course, loons, they come back to the lakes in the early spring. They're on their territories, defending their territories for at least a month, in many cases as much as six weeks before they nest and lay their eggs. And so while they're on those territories, you know, they're eating the fish that are there. And these are all contaminants that build up through the aquatic food web. They bioaccumulate, and basically they get at higher, more concentrated levels at each level of the food chain. So, you know, they start off in the sediments, they work their way up to aquatic insects, from there up to crayfish, from there up to the fish that the loons are eating. And by the time these contaminants reach the loons, they could be at hundreds of thousands of times higher in the fish that that loon is eating than what it originally started out as. So part of our hypothesis is that these loons had eaten these fish that had these chemical contaminants on squam, and they went into their bodies. And when the loons are on the lakes in the summer, they're building up their fat reserves. They're not flying around. They're staying on their territories. They're busy raising their young. But essentially, they're staying in one place, building up their fat reserves. But what happens to the loons in the fall is they have these two very energetically stressful events. So the first one is is that they go through this nearly full body molt of their feathers. I'm sure everybody is very familiar with, you know, just how wonderful and glorious these birds look in their black and white 
checked and spotted and striped plumage during the summer, but for folks who stay on the lakes into the fall, they see a very different bird. The loons molt into this very kind of dull gray plumage. They still have the white chest, but their throat gets white. They lose all those checks and those stripes. They're a very different bird. But in the context of what we're talking about, this is a very energetically costly event for them to produce all of these new feathers. And of course, the second thing that they do, as I already referred to, is they do fly to the ocean in the winter to spend the winter months. So what this does is it burns up the fat reserves. And these chemicals that we've been talking about, they bind to fat. So as the loons go through their molt and the migration, the fat gets burned. These chemicals can be released into their bloodstreams. And our hypothesis is, is that this is what happened to some of these squam loons, that in combination of the other stressors that they were facing, this release of contaminants into their bodies is likely what killed those loons. So we'll never be able to prove it because, as I say, we weren't able to collect any of these bodies because they died on the ocean. But that's our hypothesis as to what happened to them. So now the way I understand it, you had 81 failed loon eggs collected from 24 New Hampshire lakes over the last 10 years, the majority of which came from Squam Lake. And 60% of those eggs were found to contain contaminants. Is, is that the right number? Yeah, so actually 60% of them had contaminants that were at levels that have been shown to affect the health and reproductive success of other bird species. So all of the eggs had all of these contaminants that we've been talking about in them, 100% of the eggs did, but then 60% of them were at these levels of concern. And the thing is, is that we don't really understand exactly how these contaminants affect loons because those studies just really haven't been done because the, basically the best way to do this study is to sit an animal down in a laboratory and dose them with contaminants and see what happens. But, you know, for many, many reasons, this is not something that is you really want to do with loons for the most part. So these studies have not been done on the loons. So the best that we can do is compare the levels that we have seen in these loon eggs with levels that have been shown to affect the health and reproductive success of other bird species and make that comparison. And 60% of the eggs that we got back did have at least one of those groups of contaminants, maybe it was the PCBs or maybe it was the flame retardants or maybe it was the PFAS at levels that exceeded those levels of concern that we're talking about. Right. So now just to help our listeners understand, the PFAS are stain-resistant chemicals. The PCBs were a type of chemical used in electrical equipment. And then apparently the most alarming number was in the PBDEs, which are flame retardant chemicals, correct? Yes, and these are the type of flame retardants that are used in consumer products. You know, they're basically everywhere. They're in carpeting, they're in furniture, they're even in clothing. They're even in, for a while, they're even being put into babies' pajamas, which is a little scary. And they're also in electronics. And so they're these flame retardants that are in these consumer products. And those are levels that, particularly on Squam Lake, had very, very elevated levels of these flame retardants in the Squam Lunate, yes. Well, the PCBs, which were the chemicals from electrical equipment, those were banned 40 years ago, and yet you're still finding them in the lake. Exactly, right, and, you know, DDT as well. So these are chemicals that have been banned for decades, and all the contaminants we're talking about, they're in a group of contaminants that are called 
persistent organic pollutants. And of course, we hear the word organic and we think, oh, that's wonderful. But in a chemical standpoint, all that means is it's a carbon-based contaminant. It doesn't mean that it's harmless at all. But these are called persistent organic pollutants, persistent because they do not go away. Once they're in the environment, they are in the environment. And in fact, I'm sure many people have seen some of these stories in the media referring to PFAS as forever chemicals because they stay around forever, basically. But that can really be said of all of these contaminants that we're talking about. So yeah, these things have been banned for 40 years, 50 years in some cases, like DDT, but they are still around. And in fact, you mentioned the PCBs on Squam Lake. The PCB levels were so elevated that we actually now have a fish consumption advisory on Squam Lake for PCBs. And the story of how this happened is actually just a great example of how loons are such amazing indicators of the health of an aquatic environment. So, you know, as we talked about, loons are eating these fish. They're at the top of the aquatic food webs. They're also this really long-lived bird. A lot of people don't realize just how long loons can live, and we don't actually know for sure, but our best knowledge is that loons can live for at least 30 years. You know, if everything goes right for them, they can live between 25, 30 years, possibly more. So they are this long-lived bird. They build up these contaminants over their lifetime. And so these two things, being at the top of the food web, being a long-lived bird, makes them a great indicator of environmental health. So when we were seeing these contaminants in the loon eggs, two things happened. First of all, we're like, where did these come from? And so we started sampling around Squam Lake. First we sampled crayfish. Then we were sampling sediments in the tributaries to try to pinpoint an area that could be the source of these contaminants. And we did find some hot spots. But of course, the other thing that happened was we didn't want to just sit on this data. We want something to be done about it and people to be aware of it. So we were con in contact with state and federal authorities about what we had found, including New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services. And so they were taking a look at the levels that we found in these sediments, in these crayfish, in these loon eggs. And, of course, the concern was, well, loons are eating fish. What about people who might be go out fishing, catch a fish, and bring it home and eat it? So Department of Environmental Services, which I'll just shorten to DES, they went in and they did some fish testing on Squam, and they tested some of these fish for PCBs. And they found high enough levels of PCBs in the fish that two years ago, they issued a much stricter fish consumption advisory for Squam Lake because of the PCBs that, than what had been on there before. Of course, Squam, like most lakes in New Hampshire, have mercury consumption advisory, but now Squam also has a much stricter PCB consumption advisory. So this it's this really incredible story of how loons are indicators not just of the health of a local loon population, not just of the health of other wildlife species, but ultimately of even potentially as human health as well. Right. So now what is your thought about how this happens? Is it that the chemicals, which cannot be broken down by nature, end up in the sediment at the bottom of the lake? The insects eat the sediment, which has the contaminants. The fish eat the insects, and then the loons eat the fish. Does that sound right? Exactly. That's exactly it. Yep. These things just work their way up the food chain. 
and increase in concentration as they go up. And what I mean by that is, so if you think about the aquatic insects that are out there, you know, the fish that are eating these sorts of insects or, you know, even the crayfish for a step in between that are eating these things, they've got to eat a lot of them. So they're getting, uh, you know, let's just say that a fish eats 50 insects in one day. You know, so they're getting 50 little doses of those contaminants. And then the bigger fish that comes along and eats that small fish, you know, they're eating 10 or whatever of those little fish a day. And so they're getting 10 doses of those already more concentrated contaminants. So that's why by the time you get to that larger fish that these loons are eating, these chemicals are so much more concentrated than what they originally were in the lake sediment. So, of course, you know, when I talk to people on Squam Lake, they very understandably hear about these contaminants and they express concern about swimming in the lake or doing these sorts of things. And that's fine. You know, there's no problem with that because these contaminants, when you look at, you know, the whole body of water in the lake, these contaminants, they bind the sediments not to water and, you know, they're at these very minute levels in the lake, but it's the buildup and concentration through the food web that causes the problems. And that's why DES put that fish consumption advisory on about eating fish out of Squam and that we're seeing these levels in the loons that we're talking about. Right. So being at the top of the food chain is not necessarily beneficial, <laughs> especially in cases like this. That's right. You think it would be an advantage, but not so much. Yeah. <laughs> right. So tell me, in your estimation, do you think modern septic systems are playing any role with these contaminants leaching into our water bodies? I don't think so. That was something that we were concerned about because Squam Lake, like many other lakes in New Hampshire, has, you know, a lot of old camps around it with older septic systems that who knows in what good a shape they are. So we were looking at that as a potential source. And we actually did a collaboration with Jeff Schloss from the UNH Cooperative Extension, who does water sampling. And we were looking at exactly that question. So he was doing the water sampling around the lake. We were comparing it with levels that we were seeing in loon eggs from various parts around the lake. And there was not a correlation there. So for at least for Squam Lake, we think what the sources are for these contaminants, and this is based on the sediment sampling that we did around the lake, we found a hot spot for PCBs as well as dioxins and furons. Dioxins and furons are a type of industrial byproduct. We found a real hot spot for that, and that was actually an interesting spot because we sampled there in 2015. It was already elevated compared with the other levels we're seeing around the lake. Then there was a beaver dam blowout, and it caused dirt road that we had taken our sample just below that dirt road to wash out. They went in, they did road repair work, and we're like, huh, we better go and retest that site. And because of what had happened there, the levels skyrocketed. And so we think what the source of those contaminants are is that dirt road, because we had actually sampled upstream of the dirt road as well. That was background levels. It's this spot right below this dirt road. So we know what happened at dirt roads back in the 60s and 70s was a lot of the towns in New Hampshire, including where we were talking about here on Squam, they would spray oil on these dirt roads to keep the dust down during the summer. And unfortunately, 
sometimes people would put waste PCBs into that oil just to basically thin it out and make it go further. So our hypothesis is that this dirt road is the source of the PCB contamination that we're seeing at this site on Squam Lake. And, you know, as we say, these were put down in the 60s, but as we said before, these are persistent, they're still there, and they're still getting into, unfortunately, into Squam Lake. We also found spots for the DDT on Squam Lake, and one spot is still a little bit of a mystery, but our higher spot is right in an area where there was an old apple orchard back in the day, you know, back in the 40s and the 50s on Squam. And I've talked to people who are descendants of people who lived in that area or who remember when they were children, you know, just the DDT that was sprayed on that apple orchard back in the 40s and the 50s when all these things were happening. So we think that apple orchard is the source of these elevated DDT levels that we have found. And as far as the flame retardants, you know, any dump sites around the lake. Like, so, for example, on Squam, we have seen up in the hills above Squam Lake, we have seen electronic dumps, basically, where people have taken their old VCRs and computer monitors and things that, you know, if you don't want to pay the $10 fee at the transfer station, They'll dump them in the woods. And, you know, these things are full of these flame retardants that are put into the electronics. Sites like that that can cause the sort of contamination that we are seeing in Squam Lake as far as those flame retardants. And so there's not one source we've been able to pinpoint like that, but that certainly is the mechanism. So it's just a reminder of how mindful we all need to be about, you know, what we're doing in the environment, what we're doing in these watersheds, and how how careful we need to be of these unintended consequences of the sort of pollution and environmental damage that can happen as a result of those sorts of actions. Well, that just brings me to my next question. I was just going to ask you, what are some things people can do to at least stop the number of containments from going up? Yeah, exactly. So as we were just talking about, to, you know, Dispose of your things properly. Um, you know, take them to the transfer station. Those fees at those transfer stations are pretty minimal. Take them to the transfer station instead of just dumping them in the woods. Be careful about what you do along your shoreline or what you use on your garden or your lawn. I mean, first and foremost, keep those shorelines as natural as possible. The natural vegetation is the best thing for those shorelines, both as far as creating wildlife habitats and also providing a nice buffer to prevent things from going into the lake. So keep that shoreline as natural as possible, but then if you have a lawn area or if you have a garden area, don't use pesticides. There's lots of things out there for the gardening market that you can put on your flowers or whatever that will be friendly, that will not harm the environment. Just keep that area as natural as possible and don't use those sorts of contaminants and chemicals around your yard. Right. Now, what is your stance on fireworks? Oh, boy, that's an interesting question. So so there's two ways to look at this. One is from the chemical contaminant standpoint, and one is from the wildlife disturbance standpoint. So from the chemical contaminant standpoint, and it's something that we are continuing to watch carefully. So in addition to these, the sorts of contaminants that we've been talking about, we also test our loon eggs for the sort of heavy metals that you find in fireworks. 
that's something we're continuing to watch, but so far we have not seen a strong signal in our lunades from the sorts of heavy metals that are seen in the fireworks. So that's at least good news, but it is something that we are continuing to watch. And, you know, just from a standpoint of lake health, even if we're not necessarily seeing them in the lunate, this is not something that we really want to put into the lake environment in a major way. The second standpoint is the wildlife disturbance aspect. And so far, we do not see a spate of loon nest abandonments or things like that after 4th of July fireworks or of course, you know, obviously fireworks are not confined to the 4th of July, but we have not seen a linkage between a major firework display that occurred on the lake and an abandonment of a loon nest, for example. But it's certainly something that we just ask people to be mindful of and, you know, to certainly not shoot off fireworks near an area where loons are nesting or especially when those chicks are young. And of course, they have these special safe brooding areas that loon parents like to take their chicks to, to, you know, that are especially good feeding areas or really protected from wave action. If you know that the loons are caring for the chicks in a particular area, we just ask people not to, you know, to be mindful about where they shoot off the fireworks. You know, the short answer is we haven't seen strong evidence of disturbance or harm to loons as in a chemical standpoint from the fireworks, but we just ask people to be really mindful and respectful of the loons and how they shoot off fireworks and just to think about lake water quality, wildlife quality, wildlife safety as a whole when they're thinking about whether or not they want to use fireworks. Now, is it your feeling that Squam Lake is sort of like the canary in the coal mine? It really is. Absolutely. And that's a really great way to say it. All of the issues that you see that are facing loons, you know, loons throughout New Hampshire are dealing with. You know, as you mentioned, we have seen these contaminants in many cases, you know, at moderate levels, but in some cases at elevated levels on other lakes in New Hampshire. Loons throughout the state are dealing with, you know, habitat loss, recreational disturbance issues, obviously, of course, lead fishing tackle, climate issues. Loons around New Hampshire are dealing with this, and Squam is really this microcosm. And the key difference between loons on Squam and loons elsewhere is that they are seeing this more elevated levels of contaminants. And we've also seen a higher rate of lead tackle mortality on Squam. You just take, you know, one or two of these threats up a notch from what loons are dealing with throughout the state. And look what happened. You know, we lost nearly half of our pairs on the lake. We had this productivity collapse. Squam Lake really is a cautionary tale for loons throughout New Hampshire that, you know, they're dealing with so many of these stressors that are all happening to them at once. You take one or two of these challenges up a notch, and it could push that population over the edge. And I think that's what happened on Squam. It was sort of this perfect storm, but it really is a cautionary tale for loons throughout New Hampshire. I'd like to thank Tiffany Griday for joining us today. You can learn more about the Loon Preservation Committee in Moultonboro, New Hampshire, and the wonderful work that they do by going to loon.org. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, 
Please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.